0: Hello, this is Everything Else, the culture podcast from the Financial Times.
1: I'm John Sonia.
0: And I'm Griselda Murray-Brown.
1: On this week's episode, we'll be talking about art and culture in the age of Donald Trump.
0: And we will also be talking to the Turkish novelist Elif Shafak. She's the most widely read novelist in Turkey. And she told us that artists like her do not have the luxury of being apolitical.
1: And we'll find out what it's like to have lunch with the man who invented card counting and beat the dealers of Las Vegas. despair in the weeks following the election has now kind of turned into constructive rage so it feels like a time we almost have to talk about trump and what it means for art and culture we weren't going to do it this week no we, we had we a
0: completely we had a completely different segment lined up which we decided to scrap at the last moment but we felt we had to do something this week the news cycle is almost on speed we don't know what's going on in the world every day yeah. new things are being culture announced is
1: trump That's what it's become.
0: Culture is Trump. And and so that begs the question, what is the space for culture? What should art do at a time like this?
1: There have been lots of recent examples of artists staging kind of their own little mini protests, some far more successfully than others.
0: Yeah. Recently, the artist Christo, who is famous for wrapping things up, he did the Pont Neuf in Paris, the Reichstag building. He
1: was going to... What do you mean wrapping them up? I don't know this guy's work.
0: He wraps them up like you'd wrap up a Christmas present. He would wrap up the whole of the Reichstag. It was in this kind of billowing white fabric. That's it. He covers things. So he was going to do this with a portion of the Arkansas River in Colorado. He was going to literally cover it with material. It's quite hard to describe these, but really you should Google the images because they're really fantastic. This is obviously on federal land. and, And he said, I think last week, I can't do a project that benefits this landlord. So he's kind of boycotting Trump. And boycott has been one of the ways, I think, which artists have responded and said, we refuse to engage in this.
1: My favourite boycott, it was um, at Trump's inauguration, and lots of big uh, musicians refused to perform. But I love the fact that the Bruce Springsteen cover band... even the B Street Band. Yeah, the, I didn't even know the name. <laughs> who does? The B Street Band refused to perform, saying, you know, that would be kind of... They would insult the boss. Yeah. So that was probably my favourite <laughs> diss, but um, not a particularly important one. No,
0: I mean, Trump is a toxic brand for the arts. It will be interesting to see going forward who... You know, how how they deal with this, with him as president.
1: Shia LaBeouf as well. You actually showed me that stream, this live stream going on at the moment.
0: Yeah, um, it's at the Museum of the Moving Image in Queens in New York. He set up a little camera on the wall.
1: Inviting anyone and everyone to kind of go and record a message. Yeah, uh, you just saying, go and stand in front of it. Yeah, and you say, he will not divide us. And it's a 24-7 live stream. You can check it out whenever you want.
0: Shia LaBeouf was actually arrested, and this is why it, it made the news, because he got into some kind of ruckus with somebody outside at the site of this well, protest. York, nazi right? Yeah, I mean, we don't kind know of. exactly what happened, but I think that, he was say- that this person was said to have said Hitler did nothing wrong. So the idea of he will not divide us is quite important there.
1: And all these mini-protests, kind of when we were talking about it, really made us think of what the art world more collectively is going to do about a problem like Donald Trump
0: some artists think they can change the world or, like W.H. Auden, he said poetry makes nothing happen.
1: Okay, so joining us today is Jan Daly, the FT's Arts Editor. Thanks for coming in, Jan. Hello. So which other artists' protests or actions have caught your attention?
2: I think that artists obviously have got to take a decision now what they're going to do. Uh, Some artists will, of course, Keep on just doing what artists do, which is their own work. And others may well expand what's already in America a very, very deeply established tradition of politically. Well, politically engaged art makes it sound a little bit specific. Certainly socially engaged art. I mean, I'm thinking of one of the absolute darlings of the contemporary art market who's Theaster Gates, Chicago-based, who makes his work out of the ruins of the city really, I mean literally detritus is a very famous set of work um, made out of old firemen's hoses which he's then sold very very successfully and reinvested the money in social projects the market and his social engagement and his local engagement are all very closely involved so it's genuine cultural, social, political commitment it has very very little
0: to do with what you might call parliamentary politics. But I think some artists are taking kind of direct action or at least their version of direct action, which can sometimes, I think, seem a little bit uh, sort of futile in yeah, the in with the wider the varying picture results so far. with varying results there was something called the J20 Art Strike which you know had some fairly high profile people involved Cindy Sherman and Richard Serra were both taking part and this was where they sort of called on museums and galleries and even theatres and kind of public art spaces to close for the day of the inauguration. Jan I don't know how you feel about this and how much actually really can, what kind of message does it send really to to sort of boycott Trump or to say, for one day we're going to close our doors?
2: I think that it's always important for people to express themselves. And that's quite a powerful expression. It's, you know, makes headlines and it does send a message of a kind. Does Trump care about it? Probably not much. I think
1: he's (laughs) quite thick-skinned.
2: I think that it sends a strong rallying cry to those who are... Who, who want to protest against his policies towards culture in general. You know, he has a lot of power, he has the power
0: to shut down the National Endowment for the Arts, public broadcasting. Hmm. It's a sort of statement of intent, isn't it? It's a This is a very different president. This is not a president whose kind of playlist you'd particularly want to listen to, or sort of has good taste when it comes to the kind of art that he's going to hang in in the White House.
1: Because what did you think about the J20 art strike? For me, it came across as a fairly pithy action. Whereas, for example, taking the kind of more business View on this uh, debate. Um, Starbucks CEOs pledged to hire ten thousand refugees globally in light of Trump's immigration ban. Amazon have pledged to fight against it as well. And these are kind of much bigger and probably impactful actions. I mean, what 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 hope do artists have? In you know, I
0: mean, I think I think artists have on a sort of economic scale like that. Artists have quite a small impact, but I think as Jan was saying, they have they can have a kind of symbolic impact. Sometimes this is more effective than others, I think. The artist Richard Prince, he a few years ago sold an artwork to Ivanka Trump from one of her Instagram pictures. When Trump was elected, he then denounced it as a fake and he gave the money back for it. I I mean, Jerry Saltz, the New York Magazine's art critic, has said that um, Prince's act of disownership opens up an incredible window of resistance to artists. I don't agree with that and I think this all can seem like very, like the cultural elite sort of uh, twittering amongst itself and actually whether this really will bring about change. Having said that, I think activism and art can be quite linked, and there have been moments in history where artists have really kind of become symbolic of a movement or brought about change. Art is not powerless, but at the same time, I think artists are in this moment of feeling like, what, what, how do we respond to this situation? What are we supposed to do?
1: Yeah, I guess it's still quite early days. It's only in the past few weeks, especially, you know, that the results of the election have kind of turned into a collective rage. And I guess a lot of artists are just kind of getting to grips with what this means and how they can respond to it. And Shia LaBeouf and the examples we've talked about are just the most kind of visible examples so far.
2: I think the um, the very vocal artists that we think of, like Ai Weiwei in China or mm. Pussy Riot in Russia, their real achievement was capturing the attention of the world, mm. the headlines of the world in a situation of repression which worked on silence, really. I mean, there are many, many, many hundreds, probably thousands of artists and writers imprisoned in China. We don't know any of their names. Ai Weiwei managed to be a public one. Lack of publicity is not the problem in America. Mm. (laughs) That's really not the problem. It's a question, though, probably of capturing a certain cultural mood, which has been slightly lazily assuming that it had always had the the public ear for many, many years. You know, if uh, somebody like Meryl Streep wanted to speak out or one of those um, liberal Hollywood stars wanted to speak out they sort of knew that they would be listened to now it might be a bit harder to assume that they they've automatically got the audience with them
0: oh definitely i mean i think it's interesting that you know none of these people were able to do anything about trump being elected in the first place the idea that these kind of artists might have some power now that he's in office is is kind of ridiculous i think
1: but i think i think what's different now is Trump's kind of uncanny ability to provoke new and different outrages. When I said Trump was thick-skinned I kind of more meant that he will just totally close his ears to artists but there has been this instance recently of um, Trump in the micro penis drawing.
0: Yeah that was last year an artist called Ilma Gore she did this drawing it sort of went viral Trump with a very small penis not something not a way he particularly liked to be depicted and she was beaten up by Trump supporters and received threats from his legal team Um, there was then a self-described anarchist art collective called In Decline who made these statues I think sort of based around that drawing there's a way that satire can kind of poke Trump and that may be the way in which art actually kind of enters his sphere and sort of punctures it a bit. Satire has the ability to do that and he doesn't like people laughing at him.
1: Yeah, because that penis drawing did make me laugh, <laughs> and I recommend <laughs> listeners to check it out. But at the same time, I just think, slightly cliché to say, it, but when real life is stranger than fiction, satire just doesn't really cut it. I mean, there have been so many Saturday Night Live sketches, uh, Trevor Noah jokes, uh, even Charlie Brooker's Black Mirror, you know, which don't really come close to piercing the reality, the terribleness of this reality we're going through.
0: I think satire has to kind of step up to the challenge of a President Trump. And, you know, we've only had a week and a half so far, so we'll see what the next four years will bring.
1: John, one thing I've been thinking about is how culture at the moment has almost been displaced by Trump. Trump's story is being played out on multiple platforms, and artists aren't massively having their voices heard. But obviously, in times of struggle, that is really when art, music, protest art comes to the fore.
2: Well, if the question is, does culture even matter now? Well, of course. I mean, that's you know, that's where I live my life. I think it absolutely matters. Mm. It, and the extraordinary thing about culture, in the widest sense, we've been talking mainly about the visual arts, but let's not forget the songwriters, the people writing theatre. You know, we've talked about satirists. Um, I think that they all flourish in tough times. I mean, times that are not necessarily materially tough, but are tough in terms of having a kind of prevalent establishment thinking that they want to react to or rebel against. It'll be very interesting to see, for example... Songwriters, what they're doing, what kind of theater is coming to it's not going to be coming to Broadway, but it'll certainly come to off-Broadway, but it'll also come in, in the middle of the country. I think the important thing to remember about, particularly about the public subsidies in America is that they have quite substantially been devoted to much smaller places, not the big cities on the coasts. And those are places that are very dependent. Yeah, it's kind of
0: local radio
2: stations yeah. and things
0: rather than the Metropolitan Museum.
2: Yeah. Exactly. The Metropolitan Museum will thunder on in its tremendous way. Whether they'd have the guts to put on somebody called Nasreen Mohammadi, um, she, yeah. she was Indian, but that was um, what the Met opened its new building with, which would
0: probably now be considered quite a provocative thing to do. It's um, interesting that things will be considered provocative, that in the past, how work isn't particularly political and provocative. It's sort of very refined sort of uh, abstraction, minimalism. But I think we, we're living in this in this climate now where what was once the norm is, is no longer the norm and, and how that plays out in culture will be quite interesting. I was thinking about what you were saying about art sort of flourishing in difficult circumstances. And I think almost if you take that to a sort of logical extreme and think about art in times of war of course we would wish war not to happen but the art that is produced in those times can be quite interesting sometimes I mean Guernica is, was one of the most famous examples of course of kind of um, a political artwork you know it sort of captured the attention at the World Fair in Paris in 1937 and then toured for almost two decades which is really a long time and lots and lots of people in the world saw it. Thinking of photojournalism as well I mean that's been some of the most the most important artwork and I guess also because Photojournalism sort of straddles journalism and the art world. It, it immediately has a bigger audience. There are some wonderful examples, actually.
2: Some of them are whole kind of genres. So, in um, in Franco's Spain, in Catalonia, in Barcelona, the whole region, it was forbidden to speak Catalan, and there was very heavy censorship of theatre. So, grew up a whole wonderful tradition of mime groups who, of course, didn't use any language at all. So they couldn't be arrested for speaking (laughs) their own language. And also censors don't know what to do with mime because... What is there to censor? What is there to censor? It's not written down. And it was a kind of pop-up, almost sort of guerrilla art, often in the streets. I mean, that's a very extreme example. And and I think we would be going a bit far if we likened um, Trump to (laughs) Franco. I really didn't mean to do that. But it's just very interesting to see how you sometimes find that in relation to particular circumstances, you get creative people are amazing and they... Amazingly kind of subversive. Yeah, they're subversive. They find opportunities everywhere. And I think we should be not too depressed about this. I think that there could be a very different kind of work going on, but it could be extremely interesting.
1: Well, let's hope so. Thank you, Jan, for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Hello? Hey, John, it's John. So you've just had lunch with Edward Thorpe. Um, How was he?
3: He's a quite incredible person, which I think I could have probably guessed beforehand. Um, He's probably most famous as the man who worked out how to beat blackjack. He used very, very complicated mathematics back in his uh, early 20s to work out how you could count the cards to beat the casino. And after that, he also invented the first wearable computer to try to beat roulette. And then the reason I most know about him from my uh, day job is that... uh, He's generally regarded as the godfather of quant investing. He was the first guy to take advanced mathematics and computers and and apply them to investing money.
1: And it's worth saying that when he invented card counting was quite a long time ago now, wasn't it?
3: Yes, he's 84, although you'd absolutely never think that to look at him. And uh, the card counting was back in the early 60s. Um, So he's very, very much regarded as as the forerunner of the, the whole school of, the, uh, the uh, ironically, exactly the kind of uh, people who helped crash the system back during the, the Lehman Brothers crisis, the people who spend a lot of uh, money using a lot of leverage and betting things with computers and uh, spend their spare time uh, competing against each other at poker. in many ways, is the godfather of uh, those people, the forerunner. Now somebody who uh, very, very, very strongly disapproves of uh, what currently goes on in Wall Street.
1: Oh. Hey. So where did you guys meet?
3: Well, we met, he lives in Newport Beach, which is a, a very glorious, luxurious uh, place in Orange County, to the south of L.A. He's up at the top of a hill with a great view of the Pacific. I met him in his office, which, uh, again, gives you the, uh, the classic sea view. Obviously, given what I've already told you about him, I was a little nervous about... Uh, Meeting this guy, he seems a little intimidating on paper, but he's a uh, actually very lovely, very friendly man. Big grin always across his face, uh, and incredibly fit. And he took me to, to drive me to the restaurant. Very proudly showed off his this gorgeous bright red uh, Tesla sports car.
1: Very um, flush.
3: Well, well uh, which he tells me is much better than his old Porsche. And uh, <laughs> then we went to one of his favourite restaurants called Rothschilds, which I think has absolutely nothing to do with the financial dynasty, which is uh, a very, very charming, family-run, uh, old-school Italian restaurant, in Corona del Mar, the next town the next down the uh, the coast from Newport
1: Beach. Okay, and did he teach you how to beat the dealers of Vegas at Blackjack, Roulette, or anything else, <laughs> <laughs> you're allowed to say?
3: I, I don't have the, well, I don't have the patience to do that. I, I, he, he, uh, it was very interesting. He uh, did, with the aid of a, um, of a tea saucer and the uh, sugar cubes and so on he had there, he was able to give me some inkling as to how his roulette computer works.
1: And John, he's written a new book called A Man for All Markets, From Vegas to Wall Street, How I Beat the Dealer and the Market. How is it? Yes.
3: It's, uh, it's great fun. The labour of love that took him a very long time, writes. You come across all the different people he uh, he met along the way. He he rumbled Bernie, made off the, the Ponzi schemer. He met Paul Newman. He played bridge with Warren Buffett. You learn about his uh, childhood. It was not poverty stricken, but certainly a very uh, very restricted childhood during the uh, depression and the war. And it's just a wonderful tale. You you get an understanding of the man's zest for life. Uh, and for anybody who's interested in cards or in investing, you also learn a lot about how to gamble and how to manage your risks.
1: Cool. Well, I look forward to that in your piece. Uh, thanks for talking, John. Next up, we have another cultural figure who is very engaged in politics. We have the Turkish writer Elif Shafak with us. You may know her from her books Honor or The Bastard of Istanbul, which was published in 2006, and which she was actually prosecuted for quote-unquote insulting Turkishness. Griselda, you've also read her most recent book, The Three Daughters of Eve, which is actually out today. What was it like?
0: It's an interesting and very political book. Uh, She she tends to tackle these very big current issues through the characters in her fiction. Three Daughters of Eve is is no exception. It's set in present-day Istanbul at a kind of society party, but also in the 1980s in Istanbul. And it's about sort of secularism and Islam, The main character then goes to university in Oxford and she meets these girls who have different relationships with God, with Islam, with feminism. So it's tackling these kind of things that Elif Shafak is very interested in.
1: Yeah, we often think of novelists as kind of, as quite a nice, gentle job, um, if you can call it that, whereas she... She is also like a political commentator, she writes about feminism a lot, she's very politically engaged, isn't she?
0: She's absolutely not an artist who kind of shuts herself off and sits in a garret writing. She's, she writes opinion pieces for newspapers on top of her fiction, she speaks in public and she's a real kind of public figure and she actually speaks very interestingly in the interview about how being a novelist, being a writer of fiction in Turkey is a very public position in quite a different way from how it
1: is
4: here in the uk
1: okay well here is elif shafak talking to us in the studio
4: the role of a writer in turkey is so completely different than the role of a writer in the uk it's a bit like being a public figure and it's a it's a society that's very much writer oriented rather than writing oriented you can be judged by people who haven't read your work it's a society where there are lots of emotions, lots of anger, but in a strange way, where books also matter. Sometimes I think to myself, it feels like being kissed on one cheek and being slapped on the other cheek exactly at the same time. That's what it feels like to be a Turkish writer. When my novel The Bastard of Istanbul was published in Turkey, I I went through a very surreal experience. I was put on trial under Article 301, which protects Turkishness against insults. But nobody knows what exactly that means. It's so vague. And many, of course, journalists, uh, scholars have been put on trial under Article 301. But my case was a little bit unusual in the sense that for the first time, a work of fiction, a novel, was put on trial and this is a book that talks about Armenian genocide. it tells the story of the 1915 and you know it deals with memory and amnesia so when the book came out it became the target of Turkish ultranationalists who accused me of betraying the Turkish cause and I remember it very vividly there were mobs on the groups or maybe I should call ultranationalist groups on the streets burning EU flags and spitting at my pictures, and my Turkish lawyer had to defend my Armenian fictional characters in the courtroom because the words of these fictional characters were used as evidence in the courtroom against me. It was a little bit, uh, perhaps, nerve-wracking, the whole experience, and I had to live with a bodyguard for a year and a half, almost for two years. I was born in France in Strasbourg and shortly afterwards my parents got separated. My father was at the time in Strasbourg because he was pursuing his PhD in philosophy and my mom had dropped out of university, followed him to France, thinking love and family were all that she needed. And of course when the marriage didn't work out, we came back to Turkey, to Ankara, to my grandmother's house and mum had no job, no career, no money. This was a very conservative, very patriarchal uh, neighbourhood and my mother was a very young divorcee. And I remember people immediately trying to find her a suitable husband because they thought a single woman, especially a, a divorcee, was regarded as a threat for the entire community. And it was my grandmother my less educated, more Eastern, more spiritual, more traditional grandmother, who intervened and said, no, my daughter should go back to university. She should have a diploma. She should have a career of her own. In my early years, I used to call my grandma, Anne, which means mother, and I used to call my own mother, Abla, which means big sister. It was a little bit unusual. By the time I was 10 years old, my mother, um, who by then had graduated with flying colors and had entered the foreign ministry, she became a diplomat and she was posted to Madrid, Spain. So I found myself zoomed from this very conservative, uh, middle-class Muslim neighborhood into a posh international school in, in Madrid. I was an introvert. I was a lonely child. And I think books changed me a lot. After Spain, we went to Amman, Jordan, Cologne, Germany. I came to Istanbul on my own in my early 20s. Then I moved to Boston, Michigan, and Arizona, Tucson, of all places. Then I went back to Istanbul, and then I moved to London. So life for me, I guess, has always been quite nomadic. And I do believe that it's possible to have multiple belongings. I'm an Istanbulite, but I'm a Londoner at the same time. In my soul, there are elements from the Middle East, from the Balkans, from the Mediterranean. I come from a country that has lost its cosmopolitan heritage. Turkey, once upon a time, it was a multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-religious empire. And I'm not saying it was a bed of roses, but multiplicity, diversity was at the heart. Out of that, what we created was an ideology of sameness based on national identity. And this created lots, lots of problems. I honestly think the most difficult profession in Turkey today is journalism. Today there are more than 150 journalists in Turkey in prison. My motherland has become the world's number one jailer for journalists, surpassing even China. And at the same time, there's a deep intolerance, almost paranoia when it comes to dissident views and voices The moment you say anything critical, you are labeled as a betrayer. Every journalist, every writer, every poet in Turkey today knows that because of words, we can easily get into trouble. Because of a poem, a tweet, even a retweet, uh, a book, a novel, you can easily be sued, demonized in pro-government papers overnight. You can be put on trial, even imprisoned or, or exiled. So there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of self-censorship, but self-censorship is something we do not talk about much because I think it's embarrassing. To be honest, if you're a Turkish writer, I think, or if you're a writer from wobbly democracies like uh, Pakistan, Nigeria, Egypt, you do not have the luxury of being apolitical. If you care about what's happening outside your door, you can't just say, "Okay, I'm only writing my stories." I have seen coming from Turkey that even the the, the most basic rights that we find very normal can disappear. You know, time, history doesn't always necessarily go forwards. In Turkey today, unfortunately, we are sliding backwards. Uh, we have been sliding backwards dangerously for many years, but nowhere is this more visible than in women's rights. Uh, everything regarding a woman's dress you know, whether she's showing her hair or she's covering her hair, the length of her skirt, whether she's wearing a sleeveless top or a a pair of shorts, every little thing is politicised. Women's bodies have become a battleground between competing and clashing ideologies. I've never had... um, typical, if I may put it this way, conventional um, marriage, at least um, by Turkish standards. I've always been an independent soul. When we got married in Berlin, um, my husband went back to Istanbul and I went to Arizona and we had to commute between Arizona and Istanbul. It was 26 hours flight, quite difficult. For me, there can be no love if there's no freedom. I remember once um, during a live interview on, on Turkish TV, this literary critic, and even though we were talking about books, he suddenly said to me, You know, I don't understand what kind of marriage you have because you're acting like a man. You just go to London, follow your hearts. Normally, men do such things. I moved to London about seven years ago now uh, with my children. It was one of the many irrational decisions that I have taken throughout my life. I feel very attached to the English language. I write in English since I was 10 years old. At the time, Spanish was my second language, English was my third. And it's, it's an interesting commute between the Turkish and English language. I realised over time that if if there's sorrow, melancholy, loss, longing in my writing, it's much easier to express these things in Turkish. But when it comes to humour, irony, satire, much easier, I find it much easier to express it in English. Over the years, I've observed many Turkish women who can't swear in Turkish because of the way they were brought up. But when they're speaking English, you know, they swear so easily. And i always wondered, how come that's possible? You know, when we speak another language, even our voices change, the intonation, the body language. I have a lot of respect for journalism. But to me, nothing um, takes the place of storytelling. Stories reach out to the cracks and crevices existing in the society. Empathy is very much at the core of the art of storytelling. In today's world, all extremist ideologies The very first thing they do is to dehumanize the other. This is what ISIS does to Yazidis. This is what the Nazis did to Jews. What storytelling does is to rehumanize the other.
0: Elif Shafak's new novel, Three Daughters of Eve, is out now, published by Viking.
1: Next week, Griselda and I turn to tech apps and the tech world to see if we can make ourselves feel better. Come join us next week and see if it works.
0: Everything Else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Griselda Murray-Brown and John Sunyer. Our music is composed and produced by Fatim.
1: Feel free to get in touch with us, comment, query, question or review. You can find us on Twitter or email us at ft.com. You can subscribe to Everything Else at all the usual places, including iTunes, as well as at ft.com slash everything else.
3: Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast.